The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Here we go. If you have a Bible, and I hope you brought yours with you, let's open it up to Matthew chapter 9. If you did not bring one with you, you can open a phone or a tablet. Or we have these hardback black Bibles under every chair. We don't really put verses on screens here at Fathom because we want you to see this. So you can open up your Bible. Matthew 9 is on page 814 in those hardback black ones. Uh, You can uh, swipe or, you know, click or I don't know, whatever it takes to get to Matthew 9. Go for that. Matthew chapter 9 uh, is where we're going to be today. This is a vastly misunderstood verse, uh, passage that we're going to look at, and actually it's misused and abused all the time in church. Uh, so, so let me just read two verses for you that we're going to cover, uh, and, and then I think you'll see why. Look at Matthew 9, verses 16 and 17. Here's what um, Jesus says. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Verse 17, neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But if new wine is put into fresh wine skins, so both are preserved. Okay, so... So that's the text we're going to dig into a little bit today. And and one pastor that I know calls this a bully passage, like a bully text, a bully passage. And here's what he means. He he means that this new wine, old wineskin passage tends to be ripped out of context and used by church folk so much, uh, it's unbelievable. And I've I've seen this, okay, used by uh, anytime anybody in the church wants to change something. They want to change something in the church. It's new wine, right? Oh, it's new wine. And, and you know, the old ways, the old ways the, that things have been done, well, those are old wineskins. Those are old wineskins. And so we just need to change things to stay true to scripture. Let me just tell you, that's not what this text is talking about at all. It's not what this, so, I mean, it's a bully text. I've seen this happen. The way we want to do music, Right, the way we want to do Bible study, that's new wine. And your old choirs and organs and hymns, right? Your old Sunday school classes with dust on everywhere. That's just old wineskin. That's old wineskins and they're going to burst. Get me some drums and get me some small groups, right? Like that's, people do this all the time in church. They do it all the time in church. But listen, that's using this text to bully somebody into getting your way. It is, okay? It's out of context. It's ridiculous, okay? This, this text, like all texts, has a context, Where it is located and what surrounds it helps define it. And so this is why we preach the way that we preach here at Fathom. We preach straight through books of the Bible, verse by verse, so that we can see the context, okay? but but So so let's work on this text. The immediacy of this text actually makes me want to address something, okay? If you want to freak some religious people out, just start messing with their traditions. Just start messing with, oh, the organ, all right? Oh, the Sunday school class. Oh, there's a piano in that corner? Well, that's the Dorothy Sayers piano. Don't touch that piano, right? We don't use it anymore, but it's got a placard on it, so don't touch that, right? Like, just raise your hands during worship in a church that doesn't do that. You'll freak some people out. <laughs> Play the music too loud or too soft, and it'll just, you'll, people will lose their mind. How can I hear the Holy Spirit if the music is too soft? Uh, here, here's one that'll freak people out. Keep your eyes open during prayer. 
That'll weird somebody out. I don't even know if it counts. Does that count? If your eyes are open, I don't know. Uh, sit in somebody else's seat. Woohoo! right? The apocalypse is upon us at that point, right? You get some, I mean, just mess, just mess with somebody's tradition and comfort level around religion. You will see some furious Christians real fast. Today's sermon, I'm calling it the fast and the furious. Okay. Prescott likes it. We're calling it the fast and the furious because in today's text, we're going to find an interesting moment. And this whole new wine thing is actually dealing with fasting, the fast, okay, and religious observations, observances. And really, Jesus is going to put his main thrust here on why he came to earth. And listen, it's going to make some people furious, the fast and the furious. So let's look at this, okay? Matthew chapter nine, we'll get into this. It'll make sense. Look at, uh, we're gonna actually back up a couple verses. Look at verse 14, Matthew nine fourteen. Then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? That's the question. That's the question that's posed, okay? So uh, again, context Here's what happened last week. Last week, we saw Jesus call a guy named Matthew, the very Matthew who would write this gospel. He picked him, he chose him, he called him as a hated tax collector to be one of his disciples, to be one of the most unlikely choices for his team. And then after picking Matthew and choosing him, he goes to Matthew's house and dines with him and a bunch of what the Bible says are tax collectors and sinners. So he's at this dinner party with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. And this causes the religious elite, the Pharisees, to show up and to question Jesus. And they say, why is this guy eating with such filth? Why would Jesus be dining with? Doesn't he know? These are tax collectors. These are sinners. Doesn't he know this? And they're getting furious with Jesus. But Jesus' response is so beautiful because he'll say this. He'll say, I haven't come for those who think that they're healthy. No, I came for those who know. Man, I'm sick. I, I don't got this. I didn't come for those who think, hey, I've got this. I've got this life. I've got this all figured out. He comes for those who know, man, I don't got this. And, and, and then now in verse 14, the context is we're presumably at the end of that dinner or maybe right thereafter, okay? This dinner has just occurred, that dinner party with sinners. And now John the Baptist's followers come and they ask Jesus about fasting, now, John the Baptist asks about the, 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 his followers. They ask about, they say, why do we and, uh, and the Pharisees fast? Now, these guys aren't on the same team. Pharisees and John the Baptist's followers, they're not on the same team, but they are observing the same practices because John the Baptist's followers, they are shocked as well that Jesus isn't behaving as religiously pious as they expect him to. They're shocked by this. They're frustrated by this. They might even be getting a little furious, just like the Pharisees about this. Now, just like the Pharisees, okay, John the Baptist followers, they practiced a, a very uh, rigorous fasting protocol. 
So if you were a Pharisee, a religious elite in the first century, you were, there was a lot of protocol that went into your fasting life, okay? And so now John the Baptist is in prison. His, his, uh, his followers are starting to question and wonder about what this guy Jesus is. And they very likely continued practicing what John did, which was that, that bro fasted. He fasted a lot. A few chapters in Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus will say, John came neither eating nor drinking, so, so that's John the Baptist. And so these followers, they probably saw Jesus and his followers as religiously lax, a bit lackadaisical in their religious piety. So in the Old Testament, fasting, you would fast for a few purposes in uh, the Old Testament, okay? First, you would fast, if you were an Old Testament Jew, you would fast for consecration, You would fast for consecration. It's a kind of setting apart for like a special occasion. So Joshua and the Israelites, they fasted before they entered into the promised land. They crossed the Jordan, entered the promised land, marched around Jericho. The walls came a tumbling down. You remember this story? Before they do all of that, they fast as kind of, God, we want to be set apart for this mission. So you'd fast to be consecrated. Okay. In the Old Testament, you would sometimes fast for God to intervene, You wanted God to intervene on your behalf. You think about the story of Esther. She calls all of the community to fast for her before she goes in before the king to plead for her people. Okay, so so she is fasting before, uh, and she wants God to intervene on her behalf. And then third, so you would fast for consecration. You would fast for intervention. But then the third type of fasting in the Old Testament is that you would fast for atonement for atonement for sin, for forgiveness of sin. This is what uh, is still celebrated, was celebrated, still celebrated in the Jewish culture, the holiday called Yom Kippur. It's the day of atonement, and it's a day-long fast for forgiveness of sin. That's the fast. So, so John's disciples are, are steeped in this culture, and they're questioning why it seems that Jesus and his crew aren't fasting like they're fasting why they're not fasting for consecration, why they're not fasting for intervention, and why they are not fasting for atonement. Why aren't they doing this? What's wrong here? They're wondering why Jesus is not as religiously pious as their tradition would dictate. You following me here? Yeah? Can I get a nod? Can I get a, yes, we are white. Let's nod. Okay, good. Thank you. Jesus' response now to that question must have shocked them. It must have shocked them, maybe even making them furious. Let's look at this. Verse 15. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. (laughs) So that's a Jesus juke from Jesus, right? Jesus answers their question by essentially illustrating with something they would have understood. And here's what Jesus essentially is saying. Let me break it down here. He's saying this, hey, you know that Old Testament fasting? That way that you guys fast, that way that we've always fasted? Yeah, we don't fast like that anymore. They get furious. Yeah, we don't fast like that anymore. Why? Here's his why. Because I'm here. Because I'm here. We will fast. He goes on. We will fast. Just not like that anymore. 
We're not going to fast for the same purposes. And he uses the illustration of a wedding to answer their question, which actually would have been extremely effective with John's disciples. Because John the Baptist had said that Jesus is the groom. He had already used this illustration with his followers. He said that Jesus is the groom and that John functioned as something of like a best man, just kind of pointing to the groom, just kind of showing up to make the groom look good, making sure the groom was staying center stage. Well, now Jesus identifies himself as the groom. He's taking John's illustration and he's saying, hey, I am the groom. I am the groom and and his disciples are the guests. Okay, so he's just finishing. Imagine the picture. He's just finishing dinner with all these sinners and his disciples. They show up, they question him about fasting. He's like, hey, I'm the groom. These are my wedding guests. It would be totally inappropriate of us to fast right now. It wouldn't make any sense for us to fast. A wedding is a party. In fact, a wedding in Jewish culture is the only time where the ceremonial rites actually kind of get put on pause for a Jew. He says, hey, this is a wedding. And in our Jewish culture, a wedding is a feast. It's a party. Uh, A wedding for us lasts a few hours. A wedding for the Jews lasts up to seven days. It was a full-on rager. So Jesus says, hey, it would be very bizarre if we were to fast at the wedding. You've been to a wedding and fasted. I know you do that while they're taking pictures and you're waiting for dinner to come and you're like, golly, but that's, that's not what's happening here. Jesus says, hey, there is a time that's going to come that we're going, the groom's going to be taken away and then we will fast. Then they're going to fast. He's talking about a prophecy of his coming death. And he's like, yeah, they're going to fast. And actually at that time, uh, this grief stricken, stricken fasting is appropriate. And indeed, we'll see all through the New Testament in, in the book of Acts, the, 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 the disciples of Jesus are going to fast. In fact, fasting is going to become a regular practice of Christian discipleship over the last 2000 years. He's not saying fasting is done. He's just saying, listen, that we're going to, we're going to, we're going to fast differently. The disciples of Jesus will fast, but the purpose of fasting is going to change. So Christian, okay, Christians in here, if you're a Christian in here, we don't fast for the same reason that that the Jewish counterpart, our Jewish counterparts do. Okay, we don't have to fast in order to be consecrated or set apart. Why? Because Jesus has come. Because Jesus has already come and he consecrates us. He sets us apart. Our fast doesn't set us apart. Jesus sets us apart. We don't have to fast to garner favor with God anymore. Why? Because Jesus has come. Like Jesus came. He has already given us favor with God. We don't have to fast like that anymore. And we don't have to fast to find atonement for our sins. Yom Kippur is not one of the calendar events for Fathom Church. Why? Because Jesus has come. And he was sacrificed as an atonement once and for all. All of our sins covered by his blood. We fast because he already has come. And so we fast differently. Jesus is saying we don't fast, hear me, to earn something. To merit something. It's already been earned. It's already been won. It was freely given in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now here's why this all pertains to us. This flies in the face of how many of, of how many of us think Christianity works. As much as we might even pay lip service to grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, like good Protestants. 
but, but, but it might be lip service, okay? It certainly was in Jesus' day, this, this religious elite of Jesus' day, just like them, we often think that we need some measure of religious piety to earn God's favor. We often think we have to get some sort of achievement level and then God's happy with us. Goodness, I wrestle with that. I'm assuming that I'm not the only one. And this leads many Christians to attempt to earn something through religious practices such as fasting. And that leads us to some really weird stuff. Christian religious piety. Now, let me make some illustrations here, okay? I did not uh, grow up going to church. I didn't grow up in the church. I got saved when I was in high school as a teenager. Uh, A friend of mine invited me to a youth group, okay? And let me just lay my cards on the table. I showed up at this Christian youth group and I thought it was the lamest thing I'd ever been a part of. It was absolutely bizarre showing up as a unchurched person. I thought it was ridiculous, okay? So we went to this, let me just tell you about it. It was this Wednesday night youth group called Extreme Teen Ministries. I say it with that emphasis because every single T in the logo was actually a cross in papyrus font, okay? Extreme Teen Ministries, okay? And that was what I was invited to. Uh, So get every cool youth group image out of your mind, okay? That's not what this was, okay? And I got there, and they were singing songs. We always sing some songs, Christians sing, okay? Uh, But they were spelling things out in their songs, like with their bodies, J-O-Y, right? Like, they, they sang a song called I Am a C, I Am a C-H, I am a C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, right? And then some of the kids are like, what does that smell, right? So, I mean, I'm a high schooler at this point, mind you, and I felt like I was walking in on a Saturday Night Live sketch. I thought they surely are joking with I am a C, but they weren't, right? And, and, and literally, uh, that, the, one week, a few weeks after I'd been there, uh, one of the leaders, they instructed us to bring our secular CDs to youth group. This was, how, this was a hot thing in the 90s in youth groups, okay? Bring your secular CDs to youth group, which I had to actually turn to my buddy and ask him what secular meant. I was like, what does that mean? And he meant, oh, it, it means that the music isn't Christian music. I was like, that's all I got, bro. Um... I mean, what, a Christian? Like, what, is I am a C on that CD? Like, I'm not sure what's going on, but, but, but we were to bring them, okay? And then here's what we were going to do. We were going to take them out into the parking lot, throw them all into a metal can, and then we were going to burn the, Christ, uh, the secular CDs because Christians, hear me, Christians don't listen to secular music. That's what, I'm brand new in the church at this point. So I showed up next week with like the ones that I didn't care about, Okay. <laughs> And in the parking lot, there was the can. So we toss our CDs in and they light it on fire. And one of the leaders like, do you hear that noise? That's the demons leaving those CDs. I was like, bro, that's the hole in the ozone layer expanding. That's what that is. By the way, um, at the CD burning event at my youth group, that's where I got my first uh, copy of Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. Okay. (laughs) Because I was like, what do you have there? And he was like, oh, I was like, oh, I pocketed that, okay? Because there was a cross on the cover. I was like, it's got to be Christian, right? right? I think Sweet Child of Mine is a Christmas song, actually. So I pocketed that one. I just thought that that's what Christians did. I thought that was what Christians did. You don't cuss, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't listen to good music, right? You don't watch any rated R movie unless it's about Jesus, 
right? Because they released one of them and it was pretty gory. And so, yeah, we make the one exception for that movie. Like, I just thought that's what Christians did. And hear me, as a young follower of Christ, it started, I just started to believe that my behavior, like what I did, earned my status as a Christian. You didn't have to go to a 90s youth group to start believing that. Just, I was just like John's disciples. I found myself as like a little Pharisee all of a sudden. Why don't you guys fast? Why do you guys feast? Why are you drinking? Why are you hanging out with sinners? Why do you listen to that kind of music? Why aren't you religious like we think you ought to be? One scholar says this. I'll put this up on the screen. I love this quote. We may highlight again that Jesus was frequently present at parties. Jesus was clearly not a recluse, a hermit, or an unnaturally religious person. He was invited to meals and parties, and he came to a number of them. I love that line, unnaturally religious. That's the line that stood out to me in that quote. Christian, hear me. You and I have not been called to be unnaturally religious. Okay, Jesus is saying, hey, there's a better way. Now that the groom's here, there's a better way. We're not gonna fast like we used to. We're gonna fast like we've tasted. We're gonna fast like we've been to the wedding. We're not gonna fast in some unnaturally religious way. It's gonna be different moving forward. And then in that context comes verses 16 and 17. Let's look at it once again. Jesus says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and the tear and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wine skins. And so both are preserved. This has nothing to do with church music. This has nothing to do with small group models. This has everything to do with religious traditions and how they fit into the kingdom. See, these aren't bully passages. These two illustrations are actually, they're kind of like parables. They're communicating something. And the first one is really clear, right? The first one I think is very clear. A piece of unshrunk cloth, tightly sewn to an old, well-shrunk cloth in order to repair the tear will cause a bigger tear. Okay, that's, that's the first illustration, which actually, if you, if you do laundry, you already know this. You ever done laundry, you know this. Clothes shrink, especially jeans. I don't know what it is about denim, but man, jeans shrink, right? Especially if you tumble dry with heat. You ever done this? You ruin a good pair of jeans? I have, all right, they shrink a lot. Can't seem to get this across to my wife. Happy Mother's Day. I ran this illustration by her. She didn't like it, but she permitted it. <laughs> Here's what'll happen in our house. She'll buy a new pair of jeans, okay? And they fit perfectly. I mean, she is looking good, like primo, okay? Uh, and then after a few washes, they don't fit no more. And, and her response to that is, well, I think I'm just getting fat. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, you're not getting fat. Your pants don't fit because you shrunk them. Okay, stop drying the jeans. Just hang them up, okay? We got issues, okay? We're in 
seen, seen somebody about that, but you, you'd never patch a hole in a well-worn pair of jeans with a fresh piece of denim because you know that as soon as that thing goes in the dryer, they're shrinking at different rates. You know this. If you do, the patch is going to jack your jeans up more than they already were. And listen, those tears are cool now, so just leave them, okay? That's the first illustration. Second illustration is a little bit more contextual to the first century, okay? Uh, Skin bottles for carrying wine, uh, here's how they were made. You'd kill an animal, okay? You'd kill an animal. Uh, Goats were the most common of this bunch, and then you'd cut off its head and its feet. Again, happy Mother's Day, Uh, You'd skin the carcass, sew it up with uh, the fur side out. Don't need those floaties in the, the wine, okay? So uh, you fur side out to seal off all the orifices except for one, normally the neck, okay? And then the skin was tanned to minimize any disagreeable taste. Then you'd fill it with wine, seal it, and it would ferment, okay? Now, when people tell me, hey, I just wish I could have lived in the first century and walked with Jesus, I think, here's another example of why that's not a great statement, goat wine. That's gross. I'm just going to say it. Like, I don't care if you prefer it out of the bottle or even pouring out of the box from the fridge. Goat wine is grosser. Okay. Goat wine wins the day as the gross wine. But, but in time, here's what would happen. You'd have your goat wine, you'd drink it. It'd be empty at that point, And the skin would begin to dry. It would become a little bit more brittle. And if new wine were put into an old wine skin and that wine was still fermenting, it was put into the skin, uh, there would be a buildup of gases, these fermenting gases that would split both the container and ruin the wine. The wine would spill out. Both would be ruined. These are the illustrations, okay, that Jesus is showing us about following him. And he's saying that, hey, following me, it's not just a religious patch to be added onto your life. Your life is shrunk and you can't just throw this new patch onto your life and expect it not to tear something different. This isn't just new wine that can be poured into your old wineskin life. He's saying, no, new garments are needed. New wineskins are needed. If you want Jesus, you need a new life. Not just some religion kind of added onto your old ways. Now hear me, for some of you, your old ways are unnaturally religious, especially if you may have been raised in the church. You might have some unnaturally religious, hear me, old wineskins that look real Christian-y, but that are brittle to the things of Christ. Some of you, okay, these old wineskins, actually, you're probably Baptist, so they're probably more like grape juice skins. Am I right? You never drink wine, right? Except for by yourself at home while watching the Grammys, right? So like, okay. So you're trying to pour this new wine of the life of Christ into your old religious wineskins. But, 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 and hear me, for others of you, the old skins you're dealing with, they're not religious, they're irreligious. They're just irreligious. You're trying just to add a little sprinkling of Jesus wine onto your old irreligious life, but that will not do either. This takes on the Pharisees, but this also takes on the tax collectors and the sinners. This is what we said last week with Matthew. You must be willing to leave your old ways behind and follow Jesus. The call to discipleship is a new call, a new way with new wine, and both the unnaturally religious and the irreligious cannot hold it in, cannot contain it. 
So here's how I thought about this, uh, about trying to earn God's favor through religion, through activity, through religious fervor. Here's, here's how I've always illustrated this. I haven't told this story for a while, but I'll tell it again. Uh, I was raised in Colorado Springs, okay? Colorado Springs, uh, our South. Uh, when I was there as a kid, uh, there was one place, it was kind of a dead town, I don't know, 30 years ago. It's not as dead anymore. Though I still don't like going there as much. But, um, but when I was a kid, I remember there was one kind of attraction that would draw people from all across the city and it was the Greyhound Racing Track. Okay, this place does not exist anymore, but uh, it was a hot spot in Colorado Springs for years. And I don't know if you've ever seen or been to a Greyhound race, like a dog race, but here's what goes on at a Greyhound track, okay? Uh, you get to the track to watch the dogs. And have you ever seen a Greyhound? Like, I'm, does that... I'm not even going to ask, okay? Um, They're the ugliest dogs I've ever seen. And if your license plate says, I love my greyhound, you know what? Don't send me your emails, okay? Your dog's ugly. Just deal with it, all right? God bless you. Uh, They're like a supermodel dog, right? They're all sucked in and weird. That's just kind of what I see when I see a greyhound. But when they run, oh my goodness, those things are incredible. They look amazing when they run. When, When they're not running, they look like a bicycle that's about to fall over. But when they're going, man, it's legit, all right? Um... And so here's what happens. You get to a race at a Greyhound track and they put all the dogs in these chutes. And, and at the start of the race, all the dogs are just going bonkers because these things were built to run. And so they're just excited and they're rearing to go. And then a fake rabbit comes out of a chute, like out of this hiding thing. And uh, it starts going and the dogs are gonna chase that rabbit. And when that rabbit gets going, man, the dogs go crazy and they're chasing the rabbit. So they're jumping and barking and going crazy. The rabbit goes, they open the chutes and they go and they put everything that they have into catching that rabbit. And they're just running and they're running and they're running and it's incredible. And you're yelling and you're yelling because you want to win some money and you probably don't have that money to bet in the first place, but you shouldn't be there, but you're running, okay? And then right at the end of the race, just when the dogs think they're going to catch the rabbit, he just disappears back into another hole. Just ducks back into another hole. And the dogs are like, what just happened? Race after race after race. And when you stand there as a person, you're like, what a stupid animal. Ugly and stupid? That's, That's unfair. That's just unfair. I mean, how dumb do you have to be to constantly chase after something that's not even real? What a dumb dog. This is what religion is like. You're running and running and running. And listen, even if you catch it, it's a fake rabbit. It's not even real. Church, what Jesus offers us is the real rabbit. It's new wine. Not this irreligious wine that leads to drunkenness and debauchery, but hear me, for for many of us in here, it's not the unnaturally religious grape juice that leads to legalism and self-righteousness. It's new wine. And hear me, it's so much better. So much better. When you've been relying on the old wine, whether religious or irreligious, but when you've been relying on that as a steady diet and you run out, like when you're out of life and you're out of energy, you feel exhausted from just chasing the fake rabbit. Like I might be speaking some of your language. Maybe you're there. You've just been running and running and running. 
And Jesus offers, hey, come on, man. Over here. Over here, there's something better. I got new wine. No, it's not that box stuff. Throw that stuff in the garbage. It's new wine. It's better wine. Come on, feast with me. Come to the table. Listen, if you love boxed wine, just don't, okay? Sorry about that. But it just can't compare with what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the best. He's talking about new wine. And if you're there, whether you feel unnaturally religious or or unnaturally religious or just plain irreligious, today's the day to lay both of those things down before him. It's the day to lay those things down, to pray, God, change me. I don't want the irreligious. I certainly am tired of chasing the rabbit. God, change me. I want new wine. I want to be a new wine skin. And hear me, that's what's offered to us today, to each one of us. The new wine of Jesus is what's being offered. You can give up that religious grape juice. You can give up that irreligious wine. Join the feast. That's what he came for. And that's what this text actually means. Let's pray together. Yeah, Father, it is, it is good to see that a text that has kind of been used and abused and misused over and over actually is so beautiful, so wonderful, so magnificent. It would call your people out of both licentiousness and legalism both irreligiosity and unnatural religiosity. Lord, that it would call from all tongues and all tribes and all peoples to a new way, to a new kingdom, to new wine. Lord, I pray over us this morning, for many of us in here, we're gonna battle this unnatural religion, this legalism, this earning potential that we have with Jesus. We just burn our CDs. We just fast on the right days. We just read our Bible. We just give the right amount. Then somehow, God, you're happy with us. But, but, but you're, again, we said this last week, our identity as sons and daughters, as new wine, actually precedes all of our activities. God, teach us that. And, and then, Father, for those who are kind of stuck in the irreligious side, and maybe they're running after something they think is going to be fulfilling and, and they keep coming up short. The offer is new life. The offer is the real rabbit. The offer is new wine. It's new garments. Lord, I do pray that there would be men and there would be women and there would be students in here today who would bow the knee to you and say, Jesus, I want the new. I'm done with the old. I want the new. But we bless you today. We thank you for this text and we pray that it transforms our hearts in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit.